In a Prairie View Christian Church this morning, we're glad that you've chosen to worship the tough question of those who read it. It asks whether or not we celebrate the same things that God celebrates. Boy, of sinners coming to repentance, forgetting the very sin that God forgave of us. And really, the only way that sinful human beings like you and like me even can celebrate the that God celebrates, well, that can only happen if the heart of God is being developed within us. And ultimately, that's what's called godliness, sanctification, discipleship, whatever, want, whatever word you want to use to describe it. That's what it's all about. It's all about God's heart being developed within us, resulting in outward transformation. And speaking of outward transformation, having the heart of God developed within us doesn't just result in celebrating lost things being found. It doesn't just result in us celebrating sinners coming to repentance. The outward transformation of someone saved by God's grace is seen in a whole host of practical, everyday life ways. And today, Jesus hits on one of those areas of outward transformation, specifically the way his people will view and use earthly wealth. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Luke 16, verse 1. If you're using a chair of Bibles, this will be found on page 604. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you as you leave today. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for all that you've done for us, uh, all the ways that you provide for us, all the ways that you care for us, all the ways that you bring joy into our lives in both big ways and small ways. And Father, we're very grateful for all that we have materially. Um, so many of us, most of us, I certainly assume, um, have been incredibly blessed with material wealth that, that lots of people in this world could only dream of. But God, more than anything, we are far more grateful for what your son did for us on the cross. We're far more grateful for what we celebrate at communion. We're far more grateful that his blood was shed and his body was broken. So, Father, as we talk about earthly wealth, while on the one hand it can certainly be a blessing, I also pray that this morning we would keep it in perspective and that it doesn't remotely compare to the gift that you gave us at the cross, no matter what our bank accounts might look like. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name who died for us. Amen. All right. Well, if you've been a Christian for long, you may have heard people talk about the importance of developing a Christian worldview. Or maybe they've said something like a biblical worldview. And the whole idea behind that is that our Christian faith should color and shape the way we view everything around us. Our faith should color and shape the way we view our jobs, our families, our health, education, justice, the common good of society. All of that stuff should be influenced by our faith, should be influenced by the Bible. But the truth is that all too often we can be guilty of wanting a biblical worldview in some areas, but not in other areas. We can be guilty of letting the word of God shape our beliefs and shape our stances on some things in life, 
But then we can conveniently ignore it when it comes to other things. Or we can just avoid it altogether. As a result, sometimes we relegate the Bible to simply answering two questions. Number one, how do I get to heaven when I die? And number two, until then, what do I need to do to make God bless me? What kind of words do I need to say? What kind of works do I need to perform? What kind of prayers do I need to pray for God to give me stuff? Don't tell me what the Bible says about sensitive things, touchy things like politics or sex or today's topic, material wealth. Just tell me how to get to heaven and tell me what I can do between now and then to amass more stuff. But the problem with that mentality, of course, is that the Bible speaks regularly and consistently about material earthly wealth. The Bible speaks about the problem of acquiring wealth by unjust means. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is delight. An abomination is something God hates. A strong word to use there. And the proverb tells us that God cares about how wealth is acquired. And if wealth is acquired in an unjust, deceptive, or terrible way, then it's an abomination to him. The Bible speaks about how to use that justly acquired wealth in ways that honor God. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul seems to acknowledge that there are wealthy people in the church. That's just a fact of life. But he also challenges them encourages them and commands them to use their wealth in ways that build up the kingdom, that build up the church and please God. And on top of that, the Bible speaks about the very real danger that material earthly wealth can pose to God's people. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give you, With great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord your God. That phrase is important. Then take care lest you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As the Israelites left Egypt, as they prepared to enter the promised land, God knew they were going to come into wealth that none of them had ever seen before. And God specifically warns them, when you come into this wealth, when you come into this material blessing, be very, very careful. Because don't forget the one who got you there. Don't forget about me. But again, all too often... We like to ignore what the Bible says about wealth. Sweep it under the rug. Avoid it altogether. 
because sometimes we really love our money more than we like to admit. But again, we don't have to just wrestle with passages about wealth from Old Testament wisdom like Proverbs or Old Testament law like Deuteronomy or Paul's letters like 1 Timothy. The fact is that Jesus has plenty to say about wealth on his own. That brings us to Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What do I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So Jesus speaks to his disciples, but the Pharisees are still very much in view. We'll see that here in a few verses. And he gives this parable. He gives this lesson that is admittedly a little bit confusing. And how to understand this teaching has troubled people like you and people like me for a long time. What's Jesus trying to get at? But if we read it slowly, if we read it carefully, if we take it apart bit by bit, we might be able to discern what Jesus has in mind. So we see two characters, a rich man and a manager. Now, the manager is in an enviable position. I mean, think about it. Working for a rich man like this with all the resources he's been entrusted with, that job can have some perks. That's probably a pretty good gig. But the problem for the manager is that he is guilty of wasting the rich man's wealth. That same word for wasting is the word that we read last week in the parable of the prodigal son. The manager has squandered the rich man's property the same way the prodigal son squandered his inheritance. And when the rich man hears about this wastefulness, this squandering, you can't blame him for preparing to fire the manager. Let's shift back to the manager. Put yourself in his shoes. If you're the manager, it's probably too late to do much to salvage this situation. He made some bad decisions. He's being held accountable for it. He's losing his job. His goose is cooked. However, he does come up with one last ditch thing to do before he loses his job. One last thing to do as acting manager before his head hits the chopping block. What he does is he goes to the debtors who owe the rich man a lot of money. And he collects from them. But in the process, he reduces their debts significantly. Now, why would he do that? Well, he doesn't do it to save his job. Again, that ship appears to have sailed. 
He doesn't do it for revenge against the rich man, revenge against his boss. He doesn't appear to do it as an act of kindness to his clients. Why does he do it? Well, the passage tells us that he does it to save his own skin. He's about to lose his job. He's not going to have anywhere to go. He doesn't want to do manual labor. He is too proud to beg. So he figures, you know, in my last act as manager, I'll reduce these people's debts significantly. And then when I get fired, they'll owe me something. They'll do me some favors. They'll let me into their houses when I have nowhere to go because I was looking out for them before I got fired. So the rich man meets with his manager. And what does he do? Well, he commends the manager for his shrewdness, his shrewdness. Now, while the manager obviously made some poor decisions to get to the point of being fired, you have to give him some credit in these moments. Because when his livelihood was on the line, when crunch time came, the manager came up with a clever solution. The word shrewd could also be translated as wise or prudent. When his livelihood was on the line, he was clever. Okay, sure. Sounds simple enough. The guy came up with a slick solution to his problem. But again, what's the point? What's the lesson? Well, here's where things get a little bit confusing. Pick up in verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the confusion that we always come to with this parable is this. We ask the question, is Jesus commending dishonesty? Is Jesus commending this man's dishonesty? I mean, this manager took advantage of his boss's resources. He used resources that were not his own to look out for his own hide. That's not exactly upstanding business practice. That's not the most honorable thing you could come up with. But again, the rich man doesn't commend the manager's dishonesty. He commends the manager's shrewdness, his wisdom, his prudence. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't commend the man's dishonesty either. He commends the man's shrewdness, wisdom prudence. The point seems to be that given the circumstances, the manager made prudent decisions to use wealth for his own good. If you were someone who went to the dishonest manager and criticized him for it, he might respond with something like, well, you know what? Don't hate the player, hate the game. He might respond by saying, you know what? I just played the cards that I was dealt. Technically, I didn't do anything wrong. The point seems to be that Jesus is getting at is that a man like the manager, we can learn something from him about how to use material, earthly wealth. We can learn something from him about wisdom and shrewdness and prudence. 
We see more of it starting in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So as Jesus continues, maybe the lesson comes a bit more into view. That phrase, unrighteous wealth, is a way of referring to earthly money, material money, material resources. And again, Jesus seems to be saying that if you don't use earthly money well, the resources that perhaps God has entrusted you with, then why would God entrust you with something far greater, even something like salvation? We can learn something from the shrewdness, the wisdom, the prudence of the manager. But at the same time, the rest of the Bible will tell us that our definition of using money well should be very different from the dishonest manager's idea of using money well. Because if that's what Jesus is getting at, If that's the main idea of the teaching, then the question becomes something like this that we have to ask ourselves. Okay, knowing what Jesus is like, knowing what Jesus's kingdom is all about, knowing what God's values are from his word. What would it then look like for Jesus's people to use earthly wealth shrewdly? What would that look like? Because it will certainly look different From the dishonest manager. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. In other words, don't use the money like the dishonest manager did exactly. But take the wealth that you've been entrusted with and use it in ways that are shrewd. Knowing what you know about me, knowing what you know about my kingdom, knowing what you know about my father. Use it Shrewdly. Now, as we wrestle with that question of what it looks like for Jesus's people to use wealth shrewdly, we need to keep in mind that earthly wealth, it's not inherently good or inherently bad, not inherently good, not inherently bad, because as we've talked about, earthly wealth can be acquired in just or unjust ways. It can be used for good and honorable purposes or evil and dishonorable purposes. Earthly wealth can be submitted to God's kingdom for his glory, or we can submit ourselves to it, making it a false idol. And if nothing else, perhaps we can agree on this. If nothing else, Jesus's followers are called to be much more thoughtful about our wealth than we typically are. We shouldn't naively assume that all wealth equals blessing from God. The Sermon on the Mount taught us that, remember? Woe to you who are rich, blessed to you who are poor. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that as long as we give our 10%, then wealth isn't an idol for us. 
Maybe we think, you know what? I give my 10%. I give 20%. Well, you can give 50% and wealth can still be an idol for you. None of us is above worshiping our wealth, no matter how much we have or how much we don't have. And of course, we should know better than to hoard wealth for ourselves. Because Jesus said that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We are called to be shrewd with the earthly wealth we acquire. That will look very different from the dishonest manager who used his wealth to save his own skin. Shrewd use of wealth for kingdom people will look like kingdom advancement and God's glory. And one way that we use that wealth shrewdly is that we vigilantly reject the temptation to worship it or to praise it, no matter how much we have or how much we don't have. Jump forward to verse 14 of Luke 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, can't forget about the Pharisees, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So, again, we can't forget about the Pharisees. We mentioned them briefly earlier. And in light of all this talk about wealth, Luke throws an absolute uppercut in their direction. He calls them lovers of money. Lovers of money. They appear to have fallen into that trap that Jesus just spoke about. They have loved the wrong master. They have loved money, but according to Luke and according to Jesus, they haven't loved God. On the outside, they might do some good things. They might check some boxes from here to time. But inside, their hearts are evil because they love their money. And then right after that, Jesus starts talking about the law. He starts talking about marriage and divorce. And this is one of those times where you read and you think, what's the deal with that? We're talking all about money one second, and then we get into all this other random stuff. And then we go back into money in verse 19. It seems like that comes out of left field, the divorce, marriage, law stuff. Well, it doesn't exactly come out of left field, if you really think about it. Keep in mind, we're talking about Pharisees. We're talking about people who prided themselves in how good they were at honoring the Old Testament law. People whose whole lives revolved around knowing the Old Testament law and teaching the Old Testament law and obeying the Old Testament law. They accused Jesus of undermining the Old Testament law. That's why they disliked him so much. But then when Jesus starts talking about the law and marriage and divorce... He exposes something about these Pharisees. He exposes something about them by using marriage 
as an easy example. He exposes that the Pharisees have been guilty of picking and choosing which parts of the law they honor and which parts of the law they reject. They don't take marriage very seriously. That's one problem for the Pharisees. But on top of that, they don't take wealth very seriously when it comes to what God would have them do. It's kind of like what we talked about earlier, how we're tempted to pick and choose which parts of life we want the Bible to speak to and which parts of life we ignore the Bible's guidance on. And like the Pharisees, we can sometimes be guilty of loving the wrong master. We can be guilty of loving our money. And as a result, we conveniently ignore what the Bible has to say about wealth. We pick and choose what the Bible has to say the same way they picked and chose what the law had to say. And one of the biggest problems with that, one of the biggest symptoms and diagnoses of their willingness to pick and choose and ignore what the law said about wealth, well, it comes in the verses following. Luke 16 Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you were in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Moses and the prophets, that phrase, it's a way of referring to Old Testament law, the stuff that the Pharisees claimed to honor so highly. And it seems like this rich man is saying, Father, if you just leave them to the law, they're going to pick and choose the same way I did, and they're going to end up in torment like I am. Can't you send the poor man to help them? They'll believe then. But Abraham says, no. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they pick and choose what they choose to honor and what they choose to obey. What makes you think that they will believe this poor Lazarus if he goes back to them? 
because the Pharisees loved money more than God. They've been guilty of a heinous sin. They have been guilty of neglecting the poor. They're like the rich man in this last story. They can't claim an inability to help the poor. They have the resources. The rich man had clothes of purple, clothes of fine linen, great feasts. They can't claim they didn't have the resources. And like the rich man, they can't claim a lack of opportunity. Lazarus sat next to the rich man's gate day after day after day, where the rich man would see him suffering day after day after day. And like the rich man, the Pharisees should have known better than to ignore the poor. After all, they take such great pride in Moses and the prophets and how well they know that stuff, right? Well, think about Deuteronomy 24, 19. They appear to have missed this part. When you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Maybe they forgot Proverbs 14:31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Think about that. Proverbs 14:31. If you neglect the poor, according to Proverbs, You're not just sinning against that poor person. You're sinning against the God who created them in his image. But the Pharisees appear to have ignored that. What about Isaiah 58, 6 and 7? God says, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You see, the Pharisees, like the rich man in verses 19 through 31, have no excuse for neglecting the poor. They had the resources. They had the opportunities. They took such great pride in how they knew so well what God expected of them. And yet they've loved their money instead of God. And according to Jesus, if this continues, if they do not repent, if the heart of God is not developed within them, resulting in outward transformation, resulting in shrewd use of kingdom resources by kingdom standards, not by dishonest manager standards, but by kingdom standards, Then they will be punished. And in that dishonest manager's world, shrewd, wise, prudent use of money meant saving yourself. But in the kingdom, shrewd, wise, prudent use of wealth reflects a heart made new by God, not least in care for the poor, care for those like Lazarus. So. For folks like us in an upper middle class, affluent suburban paradise like Fishers, passages like these can serve as a brick to the face. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because again, godliness, sanctification, discipleship, it affects every area of our lives. 
Our faith is called to shape not just what we believe about God, not just how we spend our time on Sunday morning, not just some spiritual stuff like doctrines and statements of faith. But it's called to shape how we view and use our earthly wealth. And a consistent, a shrewd, a biblical worldview of wealth, it means acquiring it by just means and devoting it to God-honoring causes and refusing to worship it as an idol. Because yet again, Jesus said, where your treasure lies, there your heart will be also. And look at it this way. If nothing else, your wealth, as good as it can be, as thankful as you might be for it, your wealth did not create the universe. Your wealth didn't write the word of God. Your wealth didn't knit you together in your mother's womb. Your wealth didn't die on a cross for you. Your wealth did not atone for your sin, and your wealth did not defeat the powers of Satan and darkness. And your wealth will not grant you entrance into an eternal kingdom. Your wealth didn't do any of that stuff. God does that stuff. So don't worship your wealth. Worship God. Because no man can serve two masters. And I pray that every single one of us would make shrewd and wise and prudent decision in which master we choose to worship. Let's pray. Father, again, sometimes we look at the Bible and we see some passages that are encouraging and joyful and lighthearted and just make us leave feeling like we're walking on a cloud. But then other times we read parts of your word that challenge us and convict us and really point out our sin to us. And Father, again, uh, it's so tempting to pick and choose which parts we want to listen to and which parts we don't want to listen to, which parts we want to read and which parts we don't want to read and And even which text we want to preach on and which text we don't want to preach on. But Father, thank you for Luke 16. Thank you that in your grace, you explicitly remind us that our wealth in the big scheme of things doesn't compare to you. I pray that we would use it in shrewd and wise and prudent ways, not just for our own benefit, but rather for the building up of your church for the advancement of your kingdom, for the care and compassion for the poor, and that our wealth might not become an idol that drags our eyes away from you, but it might be a resource that is used for your glory. Father, thank you that even though we are so often guilty of disobedience, we are so often guilty of willful ignorance, that You're still gracious, that you're still merciful and patient with us, that you sent your son to die for us, knowing that we would struggle with sins like this, knowing that we would struggle with idolatry, 
knowing that we would struggle with rebellion, knowing that we wouldn't always love you in the way that you love us. But Father, thank you again for your grace. I pray that as we leave here, we would have a new perspective on our wealth, or maybe just be reminded of the perspective that we're always called to have, that our wealth is a resource for your glory, and that it is not worth our worship. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name, who is worth our worship. Amen.